You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. Today on our show, I'm talking with Craig Trennan. Craig, thanks so much for being with me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Craig, we're talking about your show that just opened. Congratulations on that at um, Freight and Volume. And the, the title of the show is Merchant, Mistress, and Tea. And though I know some about the title already because I've, I've seen it, um, can you tell me a little bit about where that title came from, Merchant, Mistress, and Tea, that's drawn from Shakespeare. Is that correct? I mean, in some way? Um, yes. You know, I, I have... Uh... I have an, a project that I've been working on for about 15 years where I'm taking Shakespeare's least um, thought of play, Time of Athens, and I've been slowly populating it with, uh, by making work for each of the characters for the past 15 years. And I want each character to be different and, and discernible and unique from the others. And so every time I have an exhibition, my exhibition titles can be a little bit inscrutable or inexplicable because it's just whatever the recent, uh, most recent characters I've worked on. So in this case, it's Merchant, character of Merchant, uh, character of Mistress that I brought back, uh, and T, which stands for the title character, Timon himself. Um, and again, it, uh, sometimes that, that so it seems like a lot of information in the, in the beginning for folks, but, it, but it's really not. I mean, I'm using this as a way to sort of structure my studio practice and give me prompts for, uh, you know, the production of the work, but it really is, um, uh, what's a good word for it, a prismatic practice, where just as, you know, white light goes through a prism and makes, you know, Roy G. Biv, you know, color spectrum, I'm taking uh, Time of Athens and sort of using my studio practice as, as the prism, and then it refracts out into all these different characters that are different uh, from the others. So that explains the title, hopefully. It does, yeah. Well, I think going through the work will help flesh it out even more. Uh, to, to go through some of them, because it, it's a really interesting process in a lot of these, there's, there's one piece, um, which is a canvas, but it's a um, 40-inch uh, diameter. It's called the pill. It's a uh, yes. circular canvas. Um, it says oil and alkyd on there. The, the surface looks almost like resin, right? There's things embedded in the surface. Is that what's happening? Not at all. It's all just oil paint, but I'm glad I was able to uh, to trick people. Uh, it's all, yeah, if, if I knew how to use any other, you know, material or process, I'd, I'd be probably a lot better off, but uh, a brush is the only thing I know how to operate, so everything is painted. It looks it looks like things are suspended in resin. It's really not. So, so let's talk about this one, the pill. It's a really interesting yep. one. It has a number of kind of um, illusions on there, right? There's the illusion that things are embedded, the shadows you're painting on there, but also that it's a sphere and not just uh, a circle, right? Um, right. This, this, this is, which character is this, or is this a character? Oh, it is, yeah. Everything, uh, you know, as, uh, to, to paraphrase Whitman, uh, I contain one multitude, <laughs> you know, so, so everything I do is, is based on time of Athens, no matter what. But, uh, yes, the circular pieces are all dedicated to the merchant. Uh, and I was, I was thinking of the coin shape, basically, you know, sort of uh, as, as the format, which, you know, becomes a tondo in the world of painting. But I also started all of these when the pandemic just began, like back, um, I guess, late 2019, early 2020. 
And that, uh, that early model of the COVID virus, that illustration, which looked a little cartoony uh, into me, it just, it, it had just as an illustration, it had kind of an odd tone because it was cartoony, but somehow also like, you know, trying to be menacing in a way or, or the, the information embedded with it. And so I used that, that model that basically just a sphere with dots on it as my model. So I'm, I'm using the coin for the canvas shape and I use the COVID virus illustration as my basic compositional ploy. And then I just built on that. And so for me, uh, when I was thinking of the merchant, I was thinking of coins because I do like for every character to bring it back to something intuitive and sort of personal uh, to me. And uh, I remember being a little kid in central West Virginia where I grew up and once a week, uh, me and my mom would go to the laundromat. And at the laundromat, uh, she would give me four quarters and I would go play a jukebox that they had there. And so as a little kid, I thought it was amazing to take like one type of circle, a coin, to activate another type of circle, which was a record. And so to me, that was just fantastic. And while behind me in the, in the laundromat, all of these front-loading washing machines had the circular view of just, you know, sudsy things spinning around. And so all of those circles, all to me, they were all sort of free associated and connected together. And so I used the um, records that I remember from that jukebox at a laundromat in central West Virginia to sort of populate the merchant characters, because that was me being a me being a consumer as well, I guess, uh, for one, one of the first times as a as a you know very small kid. Hopefully and that and that is clear. Yeah, I, I love that. It's a, it's a great memory, and and then all the circles upon circles, you know, make clear other motifs that are happening here in in uh, in pill. Um, but there's there's others that are there's other circles within there that that are telling different stories, right? And this is also all oil. I thought there was some collage in there, but it's not. This is all no collage oil paint. Now that I hear and have the uh, you know the the, the megaphone of uh, Yale Radio, I'll say uh, collages for quitters. I'm joking. <laughs> uh, relax, everybody. Write your angry letters to Brainerd. <laughs> 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 yes, I mean the other circles in there. They they are actually related because the McGovern pieces are um, from a, the first uh, presidential election I voted on. Yes, I was in, a, in the first grade, and we had a mock election at my tiny uh, country school. Shout out to Tanner Elementary. Uh, and and in, in voting in class, man, my first grader, none of us knew anything, but I thought I had cracked the code because it was McGovern versus Nixon. And I thought McGovern was going to win because he had Govern in his name. And I was so pleased with myself. I still remember, like, walking to the front of the class to put my little slip of paper in the cardboard box. And I was just so happy because I knew I had, I had figured it out. And then uh, McGovern lost dramatically in my class. And then, you know, in the rest of the country, he was just crushed by Nixon. And, uh, and so I always remember that. I always remember that as, like, a circle from my youth, like all of those uh, – McGovern buttons, uh, but then looking at it with my adult eyes, it's really interesting that McGovern was the first presidential candidate in the U.S. to sort of accept feminism as part of his platform, and uh, and there were feminists for McGovern, you know, political groups that popped up, and a lot of buttons I remember, women for McGovern, and so on, and so there's just a lot embedded 
there. He, ch- he changed his vice presidential candidate, his running mate, uh, I think at the convention, at the Democratic convention, uh, and it brought mental health issues to the forefront because apparently his initial vice presidential candidate, who was an a honorable uh, war veteran, uh, it came out that he was, uh, I think, seeing a, a, you know, a therapist and was suffering from PTSD, and, uh, and, and McGovern dropped him because that, he thought that was a sign of weakness, I guess, and picked a new person, but it didn't matter. He was, he was sort of fated to lose anyway. But I remember all of that. Again, from this early, I mean, once I started, you know, really immersing myself in those early 70s memories when I was a little kid, uh, all of that just, just was connected in my brain, including the record that I painted called The Pill, which was a, a record by Loretta Lynn, released in 1974, I believe it was. And it's in praise of birth control, you know, for a country record, like in praise of birth control and, and now life was going to be better for women. And it's a, if you haven't heard it, it is a groovy song. So I hope everybody plays it, buys it, downloads it, you know, et cetera. Yeah, that is good. I don't know that song. So speaking of that, there's also other singles embedded throughout right these are are these all they're all personal references i was i would imagine different songs because they there are different songs on 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 the records you're painting the 45s correct yeah yes but they're all ones i remember from that same jukebox i was a i'm sure i was a very weird kid like i i had a very good memory and i i just always had really good powers of concentration and so, I mean, I guess a lot of artists probably have this. So being left alone and trying to, like, learning one task or memorizing one thing was, like, was really pleasurable to me. And so I would try to memorize the whole jukebox so I could remember it before and sort of plan out what I was going to play when I got my four quarters the next week. And so, so it's all very interesting. So it started, of course, with ABBA, you know, and the, and the Bee Gees, and then ended with Warren Zevon, like, on the other end. But... Uh, you know, I, I can remember most of the perimeter songs pretty well. In the middle, I think I just wasn't as interested, and maybe I, I, I didn't memorize that one quite as well, but I, but I am trying to paint ones that I actually remember. I like that. I like that. That's such an interesting connection to memory because that's so, uh, it seems to stay with us, right? The early songs that we know, they, they're for some reason, they, they like, like, unlike a lot of other memories, they stay with us throughout life. I mean, I think there was something different you were doing there as an artist, but also songs, music have cultural resonance and also something very personal often about them. To totally. The listener. And in that part of, I mean, that part of West Virginia, and West Virginia, I mean, it's kind of an interesting place because it's, it's always been, uh, you know, uh, poor, like as a state, you know, it's always been poor. Uh, but yet all, it has all these sort of interesting, you know, uh, things going on in the demographic in the state, especially in the seventies, you had the last remnants of a dying Appalachian culture and sort of, you know, old time Appalachian folks who I certainly knew. And, and you know, that's a lot of my, my family. But then the, uh, on the other hand, you had hippies who had come to West Virginia to really get off the grid and drop out and like do like really be self-sustaining. And there was a lot of that, like some of my teachers, my second grade speech therapist, who I thought was like so pretty, I could barely look at her. And she, she was like, you know, it was all like crocheted dresses and silver eyeliner and saying things like groovy and stuff like that to me, which I'd never heard an adult say. 
that's why I'm that's why my speech is excellent, by the way, because of her teaching. <laughs> but but I, but I say all of that because in this jukebox in Central West Virginia, there were two kinds of music, which was country, of course, and then um, disco. You know, which is really interesting because so there's a lot of like, uh, yeah, I mean, there was like a lot of Donna Summer, and there was, gosh, I mean, uh, I mean, it's not disco, but there's like the Jackson Five, and that, but there's a lot of stuff. Uh, I think maybe soundtrack from The Wiz, you know, like there, that was that was popular then, and then Michael Jackson's song from The Wiz, but it was just interesting. Like looking back, like it's really interesting, like seeing all that stuff bumping up against each other, and and that's why one of the one of the large paintings in the show is called Convoy Lafreak. Because uh, the two records being portrayed are Convoy, which I think was maybe maybe the biggest hit of 1976, and of course uh, La Freak uh, by Chic, uh, that uh, that I, I thought was a, a great song when I was young. I mean, I still love it, but I mean, as a little kid, it was just like hearing. You know, I never heard music like that, so it was like it was coming from outer space or something. It was so uh, unknown to me, but I loved it right away. I love that. Yeah, it's a great, it's, a, it's such a wonderful reference. And so, I mean, that moves to another body of work. There's also um, uh, the tease, of course, which is Taman, right? We're, we're, we're talking about another character here. Yep. That, yes, that and this it's, is a different it's medium. Also. This, this is silkscreen uh, that you begin with and then you paint on top of it. Is that what's happening there? Well, only on, uh, I think, two of the works on paper are they silkscreen. But the rest that are painted, uh, it's, it's all painted. Again, it's all oil and alkyd uh, on canvas over a built you know, letter form. Because all the T pieces are shaped as a letter T and are sculptural. But, uh, but yeah, they're all the, the what graph paper lines what, are all hand-painted on it you know, once, once you get bigger. But I like those, and when I start every new character, I really, I mean, I, I'm, I'm never going to claim to be an actor, but I have had some, uh, a little bit of training, and there is an acting coach who sort of took me under her wing. And so when I start every character, I really do try to think, you know, what emotional memory is it bringing up, what, what muscle memory when I'm holding a brush, a palette, when I'm working on, a, on this scale or, or with a 3D object rather than a 2D object. And trying to sort of be very conscious of that and then being able to instrumentalize all those feelings toward making the character, um, which isn't how painters normally think, I know. So I'm an oddball in a lot of ways. But, but for me, it's really interesting. And so when I'm starting the tea and I'm trying to sort of bundle together all the associations, you know, I, I try to combine two... Um, you know, two uh, signs. I don't. I don't want to say tropes, although you guys probably love that on Yale Radio. But I'm not going to say it. I'll say two, uh, just two indicators of suffering. So the T, especially when they're large, and if I'm carrying them around the studio, if I'm out on the loading dock, people will see me carrying a big T, and they think that I'm carrying a crucifix. I think it's a religious reference. Yeah, that that, that then, was the first thing that, that popped through when I, when I saw it for a second. It seemed almost that way, especially with kind of blood on it. But but go on. But of course, it's not. Oh yeah. But no, well, but but that is the reference. And so I was playing on that tradition, and, and you know the tradition within painting of, of religious painting, and the whole you know late Gothic Renaissance and so forth, when the church really has this sort of stranglehold on uh, on on image making. And so I was trying to play into that tradition, certainly. You know, and when you see them up on the wall, they really do start. If anybody went to uh, you know a Catholic school or even 
like a you know a Methodist church, like you know where where you're used to seeing just the, the big thing on the wall. Uh, then it, but I but I didn't want to do it outright, so I had it almost, you know, it's like 75% of a crucifix, as an indication of this sort of ongoing uh, indicator of of suffering somehow and and the infinite, and onto it I combine abstract expressionist painting technique, which was the other sort of mid-century version of suffering and the infinite. And so I just try to combine both of them, like to, to again, just to bundle all of those uh, cliches together. And then I wanted to render them. I mean, people haven't seen the show. It's, it's, it's all executed in uh, orange, uh, fluorescent orange paint. And it's really hard to get oil paint in fluorescent colors. Like I have a guy in Tampa that makes it for me, like custom makes it for me because none of the other paint manufacturers will make it because, you know, the idea is within the world of oil painting, oil painters typically fetishize their own tradition so much that nobody wants fluorescent colors. So that's what I like about it, that it's an outsider and it doesn't have an art historical tradition. And so to render these two recurring uh, echoes of suffering and the sublime, but to render them in a type of paint that has no history, it's all vernacular, you know, and it's a, I like, I like just uh, how slippery that makes them, and, and hopefully other people like it as well. But but I'm I was pleased with how those turned out, and so uh, that's a very long answer to your question. But I wanted to, you know, it's uh, a good answer. I like that though because I, I I like those pieces a lot too. So there's so there's another another character we have to talk about the mistress, um, which is also looks like it's approached completely different um, because some of this is is also painted on the, on the wall, correct? That one does, yes. It has a wall-painted uh, reference. And, and honestly, those, when I first started the whole Time of Athens project in 2008, the mistresses were the first character because they were like minor characters. They didn't have very, very few lines in the play. Uh, they're good lines, but very few lines in the play. And so I started to think, you know, the mistresses were uh, sex workers for a general in the play. And so they were kind of hanging around some scenes uh, and so what was interesting, because they were sex workers, I thought, you know, something physical and intimate, but I didn't really want it to be gendered because, you know, I, I, I sort of like opening it up, you know, and so, and I also didn't want to just scour the internet uh, for images. And so for first mistress, I asked someone one time, like, is there any chance that you could send me an image. Uh, I have this project I'm starting because I hadn't made anything yet. And I think we'll start this long-term project. Any chance you could uh, send me a JPEG that I could work from? Uh, and I wanted it. I mean, just hopefully this isn't scandalous to your listeners, but I, I want a picture of the anus. And I sort of liked the fact that it was a portrait, but not of the face. It was like the anti-portrait. And I like kind of the history of, uh, of jokes and satires. Like, Going back to uh, Chaucer and the Miller's Tale, which I think I read at the seventh in the seventh grade, which is a little too young to be reading that, but I thought it was the most hilarious thing I'd ever heard of. Uh, by the way, Yale listeners, uh, go reread the Miller's Tale; it's hilarious. And so I wanted something, and I'd never mi- I'd never mixed flesh tones, like I never painted from the figure, and so I wanted to just learn how to do it. And so I took, and eventually. The person initially said no, but then uh, a few weeks later, I got an email that said, okay, talk to my partner, like, we're, we're thinking it's fine as long as you never mention our name. 
And I was like, perfect. Uh, but then, without asking anyone else, other images started to trickle in, which was a little strange. People said, hey, heard about your project. Use these images if you want. And so, so, to, so just to be clear, so then people keep sending you pictures of their anus that you don't know. I don't know any of them. And I sort of like that. I, uh, the only thing I'll do, I just say, like, um, just checking. You're, you're an adult, right? And then, then they'll be like, oh, yeah, sure, God, of course. I'm like, you know, 38 or whatever. Like, they might, they might say that occasionally. <laughs> right. But, um, but I don't know them. I don't know their gender. I don't know their class. I, don't, I know nothing about them. And so to me, it's very interesting to paint these images. And the, the, what you see on the wall, it's just like a dotted line or a straight stripe. There's something that it, it all feels like Microsoft Word from 2002 or something. And I right, like because we're talking about it. I mean, just to be clear, and, and listeners will also see links to this in the show, but there's a canvas on the wall. That's yes. a certain size, uh, 15 by 15, I think. And then there's, there's vertical stripes that are painted on the wall adjacent yes. to it. Okay. Yeah, and I, and I like that because, you know, it, it's been really interesting because when people look at those images, they project onto it whatever they want them to be. And so, you know, gay men uh, have tended to project and say, oh, that's definitely a man. Uh, straight men have said, oh, that's 100% a, women, a woman. Uh, gay women said, oh, that looks like my girlfriend. And so it's been really interesting that everyone projects onto it. It really is a blank slate. And, and this is, it's been kind of fascinating. And, you know, the, the dotted line on the wall, it's just, I think, to me anyway, I thought it was a nice unexpected addition that makes the, it, it sort of resituates the image. Like you're not sure, is this a medical illustration? And are all these little dots and color code, does that mean somebody's healthy? Does that mean they're not? Like it doesn't exactly seem like pornography. It doesn't exactly seem like, you know, these other, you know, genres of image making. And again, to me, that's interesting. Like I like, I like it when, you know, the, when the image gets kind of, you know, um, you know, uh, let's see, uh, it doesn't stay where you put it. Like it, the image can go anywhere. It can be anything for anyone. It's really sort of volatile in, in a good way. Right, yeah, that, that, that's so interesting. So then all of those images were essentially painted, not from life, but from, from photographs. That's why these are, um, these are realistic. These are, uh, I mean, well, yeah. I mean, ma many, many other work is too, but, um, but this has some interesting elements in it. So, so great show. It's great talking about all of this and, uh, and, and, the, and the variety of elements. I wasn't at the opening, but were there, were there any surprises in the conversation that came up? Because there's, there's so many references that I, that I would imagine, you know, reach people in a number of ways. There's cultural references. There's, you know, literary references that, that, that we've touched on and, uh, and, and more. Did anything surprise you about the conversation or the, any of the feedback? Well, from, from I business? tell you, you had some Yale alums in the audience, so that was, that was nice. Uh, you know, the, the amazing, I was just amazed because I'm, I'm an out-of-towner, you know, so I, I don't live in New York. Uh, I used to years ago, but I haven't lived in New York in some time. So as an out-of-towner, I was just so happy that so many people showed up. Like, it was a really, really good crowd. And, uh, and I feel like uh, there are a lot of entry points into the work. Uh, I really just, I really believe in just the response to the work without any explanation or background knowledge. I mean, I really believe in that. I, I truly do. And so my hope is for all the pieces of all the characters can have like, that they can be 
like an interesting stranger, you know, that they can be sort of seductive without you having to know everything about it. And then just like an interesting stranger, if you want to learn more, you can. You know, so in that sense, I felt like I'd produced a room full of, you know, pretty interesting strangers and, and the audience was responding. So I was happy about that. I like that. Well, you certainly did produce a really interesting room of strangers, as you put it. And I want to ask you one more question before we go, which is what are you reading at the moment? I'm just curious. You know, I read a lot of poetry. Like, I have such respect for poets. Uh, being a painter is a hard job, but being a poet, I think, is even harder. You know, uh, and because you're using language, something that everybody uses, and so to take something so familiar as our given language and make it look magic again, like make it look impossible, make it look unbelievable, like to me, that's a great, great gift and accomplishment. So there's a lot of poets uh, I've been reading. I think the most recent book I bought um, was... Uh, Oh, boy, let me think. I, I, I tend to buy in bundles as well. So, uh, you know, Monica Yoon has a new book coming out soon, uh, and she was really great. And I met her once at a, uh, like, an award ceremony. I met Monica Yoon, and I sort of, you know, was like fanboy, talking about how much I liked her previous collections. But there's a lot, I think, um, gosh, I don't want to get it wrong, of uh, uh, Victoria Chang, that's who it is, sorry, the, the obit a collection of poems uh, that she wrote recently where she writes obituaries as a poetic form for the things that she knows who've died. But I'm, I'm amazed by poets. So almost, you can ask me almost any time, any year, any month or week and say, what are you reading? And the answer is probably going to be poetry. Well, it's, it's, it's very similar for me, actually. Are you, is, is there certain presses that you, um, like go back to a poetry or, or how do you find different books of poetry? I mean, with, with novels and books, I almost get referred or where there's things I follow, but with poetry, is there presses you follow or, or names or no, how do you find new books? No, it's funny. I, I, again, I, I haunt a lot of used bookstores and I'll just like flip through. And I think if I can just flip through and immediately become interested, even if it's somebody I've never heard of, probably I'm going to like it. So I get a lot of it that way. But um, Frank Skinner uh, has a great poetry podcast. Uh, hopefully he continues it. I think he's done maybe three years of it where he introduces people and is very excited about the work. And so lately I've gotten a lot of, uh, a lot of references from the Frank Skinner poetry podcast. Uh, but, I, yeah, I, I get references. I mean, I know poets and, and, and writers, and they're always more than generous, you know, with, with referring things, you know, for me to read. And it, it's always, it's always great. I'm never disappointed. Well, Craig, I want to thank you for talking to me today and congratulations on your show, which is open for listeners who are, you know, listening to this before December 30th. You can see it uh, in 2022. And again, thanks so much for your time. Thank you even more. Appreciate it. You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more.